Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Sending so much love to everyone back in lockdown. What a week. A spate of really horrible global news and everyone freaking out about the election. So this will actually come out the day the election's tomorrow, isn't it? Well, my WhatsApp groups were all discussing just one thing this morning which is that Baby Shark, the infuriatingly catchy song recorded by South Korean company Pink Fong, has become the most watched video ever on YouTube, over 7 billion times. Once upon a time when the internet was just a baby, well, not the internet, memes were just a baby. Do you remember when it was Charlie bit my finger? Yes, I do remember that. It was the video that everyone used to get out at the end of every rubbish house party in the mid-noughties. really wasn't that good. Ow! Ow, Charlie! Ow! (laughs) Charlie, that really hurt! Okay, so Charlie Bit My Finger on YouTube, 22nd of May 2007, has had 877 million views. Now, have you seen the one underneath? It says, Charlie bit my finger 10-year anniversary with two quite sheepish-looking pre-adolescent boys. There's a whole company called Charlie Bit Me. Charlie Bit Me Christmas Special. Okay, let's not go down this hole. (laughs) Come back to the high-low. Well, speaking of memes, I fear our WhatsApp groups are going to go into overdrive again as we enter lockdown. Literally, as the Boris address was happening, my family WhatsApp group, it's like the alarm was sounded and Tony Alderton started... (laughs) To create. Going into his vast archive of memes to send. And I am interested to see whether this second lockdown will have a different vibe to the first lockdown. I wonder whether there'll be a return to the Zoom quiz, whether there'll be the Zoom drinking sessions, or whether that is firmly belonging to lockdown one. The time of year as well is very different. It's not light as long. So the alcohol you're drinking the alcohol you're drinking is now more of the like red wine variety which is a bit more sleepy rather than like <laughs> energetic I don't know I've I've never done a zoom quiz have you not how did you get how did you get out of that well my son was still pretty young so I was just so knackered by the time it got to like eight o'clock yeah. and I'm still pretty knackered by the time it gets to eight o'clock so I'm not sure if also you know me I shut my laptop turn my phone off and just Mm. waffle off to do some painting so I'm pretty antisocial in the evenings (laughs) I don't think there's going to be a return to it I don't think I think it will re-traumatize people to return to the socializing on zoom thing I really would be amazed if that happens in such an intense way again actually I might do a charity one that a friend of mine's doing in a few weeks that looked fun it's for a good cause so I might give that one a go if it's for Chazza I might do it but otherwise no Dolly, have you heard of doom scrolling, also known as doom surfing? No, what's that? I read about it this week. It means surfing or scrolling through bad news and continuing to do so, compulsively doing so, even when you already have the relevant information and there's no need to continue. Does that ring any bells? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Nearly everyone I know is quite addicted to doing that. I think people are doing a lot of doom scrolling at the moment. And also the nature of the doom scrolling has really changed because a year ago, people might have said that doom scrolling was like looking at Instagram content that didn't make you feel great about yourself. Whereas now it's just burying yourself further and further into 
very similar iterations of the same bad news. Yeah, and I find myself doing that really childish thing of going through the same news articles in hopes of finding a new piece of bad information that I can use as a way to prove that everything's terrible. Do you know what I mean? Kind of blithely ignoring anything that feels optimistic or, or hopeful and being on the lookout for specifics of bad news. It's really bad. I've got to stop. It's really natural though. It's the negativity bias. Humans mm. are primed to, because if you look back to when humankind was first created, it was, it was looking out for danger, wasn't it? They always had to exactly. be on the lookout. So now we don't have that physical danger, most of us in the world. So we're looking out for kind of, we're looking for that danger in other places. And it's so much easier to latch onto the bad stuff and the good stuff. That's why I feel like really cross with newspapers at the moment. And I've stopped reading. I'm still reading the news, but I'm reading it online. I've stopped buying the newspapers for the first time in like 12 years mm. because I was getting really frustrated and disappointed in the way that like headlines were being done. There doesn't there doesn't seem to be any kind of responsibility at the moment to thinking about the mental health of the people picking it up. You know, I get that there is terrible stuff in the world and that needs to be relayed truthfully and as accurately as possible. But there needs to be some kind of, I think, responsibility for how those headlines can make people feel or what's the way to get this across without it being completely without hope mm. you know can you alternate news stories i don't know that I'm, not, I'm sure to some people that sounds really naive but i really think we need to look at the way in which we present news especially when there's a surfeit of really bad stuff yeah also particularly when we have personal streams of information i don't know about you but my whatsapp groups is just like Reuters of doom and Captain Tom memes. Do you know what I mean? It's breaking news every fucking day on my WhatsApp groups. So it's like coming from all angles. Like the bad news basically is going to find its way to me, whatever, even if I'm not reading The Guardian every day. The bad news will get to me. I think I'm very lucky in that most of my best friends prefer one-on-one -on -one communication. So I haven't had to be rude and not join any groups. And I think that probably really helps with the communal doom surfing. I'm on so many groups and most of them are just the detritus of sort of past nights out. So there, yeah. I'm on a group that's like big Thursday night that's from 2018 and people are still talking on it. <laughs> I love that you're on so many groups as well because there couldn't be someone less up for it. <laughs> I know. I now have a system and I don't know if you've noticed this system with on WhatsApp. I... Because basically, normally I would do a once a week sweep sweep away, sweep away of all the, do a reply to everything. And now I do a daily sweep, a bit like the hairdresser with all the cuttings of strands on the floor. I do the daily sweep of replying to people on WhatsApp. And I do the once a week sweep away, replying to the person I was at primary school with who I haven't spoken to in 10 years, who wants uh, me to sponsor her leg wax or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I do too. And with my email. Yeah, and you've got to space it out because if you do the clear out of all of them intensely in one hour, what do you find? They've doubled. Because then they all reply. How do you complete WhatsApp? That is, that is the question that's always on my mind now. How do we finish? How do we get to the final level? <laughs> you can't. You can't. You can't. You can't. I'm actually, I'm being a bit of a Scrooge about this because WhatsApp in lockdown is an absolute lifesaver, particularly as someone who lives on their own. And during first lockdown, I basically just became a professional WhatsApp. I was just on WhatsApp for six hours a night and it was, you know, my only company. So not being doomy and gloomy. Thank you, everyone who WhatsApps me. Keep the old girl happy. Panda, mm -hmm. can I tell you my favourite headline from the last week? Mm-hmm. The Yorkshire town that thinks it might be in Lancashire. Where did you find this one? Actually, don't tell me, don't tell me. I like to think that you spend hours combing the internet for the best one. So don't tell me where it's from. I'd hate to know your sources. Maybe you go, I think actually you hit the streets with a notepad and pencil. <laughs> so anyway, carry on. 
we actually, when I did my journalism training, we had to do that. It was my most dreaded day of the week. We had to take a notepad and we were given a ward of London and we had to, and, and a specific subject, and we had to just go find a story just by talking to people. <laughs> That's proper reporting though, isn't it? Being like on the beat. Well, it isn't, it isn't. If you saw some of the stories that came up week on week, I remember one girl managed to get some story about how there essentially had been some roadworks. Anyway, the Yorkshire town that thinks it might be in Lancashire. This Yorkshire town on the Lancashire border has a complex administrative history. It's no wonder that Todd Morden residents are arguing over which county their town belongs to. Before West Yorkshire existed as a county, was formed in 1974, Todd Morden was in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Until 1888, Todd Morden was in both counties. North and east of the river was Yorkshire, while west and south of it was Lancashire. Todd Morden Town Hall famously straddles the Calder, and at one time in the ballroom, you could dance from one county into the other. Isn't that lovely? Most agree Todd Morden is in Yorkshire. I just like this idea of a town having this sort of identity crisis. It does happen though, doesn't it? Don't, don't counties get reshuffled sometimes? And I get a bit confused by postcodes, don't I? Someone will have a postcode that you think makes them belong in one county, but they'll be adamant they belong in another. Yeah, I've got a friend who lives on one street that makes it Croydon and the street along makes it London. And apparently there's just this like mad price difference between these these two streets of basically identical houses because of that postcode division. Isn't that mad? Speaking of headlines, interesting turn of events with the Johnny Depp case. Did you see that this week? Yes, I did. Found guilty on 12 out of 14 counts. And if you read through all of the counts, they are shocking. Mm. Yes, we are now allowed to call him a wife beater because that's what yeah. the case was all about. Yeah. Was, it wasn't Heard versus Depp, which is why it was so awful that she was put on trial. She was called in yeah. as a character witness. It was um, Depp versus the son who called him a wife beater. Exactly. And they won the case and obviously put it on their front page when they did. I mean, you would if you weren't, wouldn't you? Yeah. And also, Sean Connery. That's another thing I was really interested and in, actually kind of thrown by this week. The actor obviously passed away age 90, and I had no idea. I didn't know much about him. I read a few obituaries, and then it transpired that there was a video interview with Barbara Walters in 1987, where Sean Connery had said that he believed in slapping women. People were really divided on this. There were some people saying, you know, when someone dies, you're not, it's not like you're pretending these things didn't happen. And then other people saying, well, obituary shouldn't become hagiographies. And I do understand the argument that says that when someone dies, why should we dig up anything bad they've ever done? But hitting women, should that be omitted when domestic violence against women is still so bad, particularly mm. this year. Mm. I mean, it shows how buried things become like pre-internet, doesn't it? I had a slightly unexpected experience in that I posted on the day that he died, not to commemorate him. Um, you know, I, I'm not hugely familiar with him, with him as an actor other than the Bond films, but I posted a picture, which is just my favorite image of all time from movie history of him teaching Ursula Andres how to handstand. I've shared it a lot online before. It's like, you know, my most everlasting iPhone wallpaper background. It's just an image I love. And I had lots of girls message me and comment saying, with that, with the clip to that Barbara Walters interview saying, I don't know if you should be deifying him or commemorating him. And I had never seen that interview before, so I immediately took it down because, yes, there's the argument that what I was commemorating there, as I said, is like a moment of movie history as someone who is very enthusiastic about cinema history. But really, on the day of his death, what I was doing there is commemorating, you know, commemorating him. And what does commemorating mean in the wake of someone's death, often deifying? And what does that mean, eradicating the uncomfortable truths of who they were and the people that they hurt? I wonder how many of these obituaries didn't know, like you or I, 
or just chose not to include it. Include it. Former, probably not great research. Latter, quite terrifying because I really wouldn't have thought we're in that time right now. I'm, I'm really thrown by it. I'm also thrown by the fact that I didn't know. It's making me wonder how much else I don't know about Hollywood history, but I am surprised the same week that turned out that Johnny Depp was guilty, that we haven't perhaps learnt from how we look at domestic abuse against women or how it's reported or how it's shared or... The thing the thing is, is that there is a world in which you can talk about Sean Connery and his role as Bond, his very distinctive look and voice and acting style, the amazing films that he participated in and the kind of cultural significance that he had and what his voice, his look, his acting has meant in this canon of cinema. You can do all that while also stating the facts of how unacceptable and hateful his thoughts were on on domestic violence. Like, I suppose in, in maybe a naive way, I believe that an obituary can state the fact of all those things and the fact of his significance doesn't mean that he was a man who we applaud morally. I think an obituary should lay forth all of that. If it's something that is, if it's something like that, not like, did they once send a rude tweet to someone when they were drunk? But like, did they go on national <laughs> are you, television? Are you currently writing my obituary? <laughs> <laughs> I hope I never have to. <laughs> Speaking of celebrities, a speech by Sasha Baron Cohen that he made a year ago has been retrending on Twitter. There's been quite a lot of furore about his new film, Borat, incidentally, but I haven't watched it, so I won't comment on that because I literally haven't seen it. But this speech he did seems to have started trending again because it's basically a six-minute summary of the social dilemma, at least the meme that turns it into six minutes. I think it's probably a longer speech, and it feels eerily timely and it was obviously made a year ago. I want to play a bit of it. Fake news outperforms real news because studies show that lies spread faster than truth. On the internet, everything can appear equally legitimate. The rantings of a lunatic seem as credible as the findings of a Nobel Prize winner. Voltaire was right when he said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. In the end, it all comes down to what kind of world we want. If we prioritise truth over lies, tolerance over prejudice, empathy over indifference, and experts over ignoramuses, then maybe, just maybe, we can save democracy. Weird to see him and hear him speak in his real voice isn't it? It's very rare. I don't think I've yeah. ever heard him speak before. I think I heard him on Fresh Air and he <gasps> is... Has he done Fresh quite... Yeah, you can listen to it on the archive. And he is just a really intelligent, incredibly eloquent, quite, quite serious man, <laughs> which is obviously so at odds with his characters. Yeah, I mean, there's been so many things going round about Borat. I actually really wish I had seen it because I don't want to mention any of them here because I just don't know how much of them ring true. But he is really, his his films are really controversial, aren't they? Yeah, he talks about that in his Fresh Air interview, actually, about how he makes those films and, and the ethical implications of all of them and the risk he poses to himself by making them. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Okay, I'm going to dig into the archive. Thanks for that tip. I have a question for you, Panda. Yes? I'm going to say a phrase and you tell me what you think it might be. No nut November. Something about squirrels. <laughs> well, no nut. So no nut November encourages men to go 30 days without ejaculating. <laughs> or Why? busting a nut. I just think known. that's just like, there's so much going on right now. Like, have a wank if it makes you feel better. It's so 
Why? Listen, honey, I'm with you. I couldn't be more with you. But apparently this is sweeping the nation, to use the parlance of our friends who Sweeping the nation. So the Metro, my favourite newspaper, reports, the rules are simple. You may not have sex, masturbate or nut in any way, shape or form. You may have boners, but you cannot come to completion. People are using the challenge to raise money for prostate cancer. So if you do fancy going public about your choice to quit masturbating, you can make your No Nut November do some good. If a friend got in touch and asked me to sponsor them not wanking (laughs) for a month, I agree, it's great to raise money for prostate cancer, but I would actually throw up if I got that email. (laughs) I'd rather sponsor a leg wax. That was going to say that would be one of the Sunday night WhatsApp clearouts. Hi, Dave. Nice to hear from you. Feels like I haven't seen you since Freshers Week. Massive congrats on doing No Nut November. Sadly, I can't support this, but wishing you all the best with it. Well done on not having a tug, Dave. <laughs> the Metro says there's an alternative view, which is that No Nut November is the perfect way to prepare yourself for Destroy Your Dick December, which oh! works as an. <laughs> Which works as an advent calendar meets the 12 days of Christmas. This is disgusting. On the 1st of December, you come once. On the 2nd, you come twice. On the 3rd, you come three times and so on until Christmas. Very jolly. I really hope mum doesn't listen to this episode. (laughs) Well, November is a big month because today we are celebrating World Sandwich Day. And I just got a press release to say that the uh, 4th of November is National Sex Toy Day. So if you wanted, you could just combine them both and have uh, a sex sandwich toy day. So just put your favourite vibrator between two slices of bread and tuck in. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like a lovely combo for me, heavenly combo vibrator and your favorite sandwich but they there's been some sort of miscommunication here because why would you place national sex toy day in the month of no nut november well that's very cool i imagine Mm. that part of the challenge of no nut november because if that's not a great enough challenge is that the women go wild in the black friday sales with the sex toys to gear up for national sex toy day to taunt the no nutters to make the challenge <laughs> even more um, uh, brave, triumphant. It is brave. I think it's it like is Everest. Brave. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Our boys. Think of our boys. <laughs> but can we go back to Sandwich Day? Yes, I want to talk about this. I want to know what it entails. What it entails, I think, is pretty up for grabs in terms of in terms of how one celebrates this national holiday you celebrate the sandwich i would i would presume wouldn't you but the thing i think you'd be most interested in is online takeaway platform food hub surveyed 2000 brits to find 2020's most loved sandwich now hold on guess hold what on. The... go on you see because i'd always say something like ham and cheese but then i always get thrown by the absolute nutters who go for like egg mayonnaise like you, like, oh, I love an egg salad sandwich or something. What is it? Love them. Yeah. <laughs> so ham and cheese actually came out second. Yeah. I think you are going to be incandescent with rage about what came up top. And I do anticipate that national anarchy might break out. What came out on top was the burger, whether beef or chicken. Now, I think you have the same sort of questions that I have. I do. Well, Food Hub spokesperson Will Chung said, there's been some debate about whether a burger is even a sandwich, but we've done our research and it seems it absolutely is. But we expect that the burger being voted as Britain's favourite sandwich is destined to stir much debate. Well, do you know what, Will Chung? It has. So, yeah, it looks like a burger really is a sandwich, but... Pandora, you and I have to be the truthers in this. We know it's not a sandwich. Well, on IHaveTheBurger.com, it does say, a burger is not a sandwich. The crowd whispers frantically in a frenzy of disbelief and outrage. This is from 2015, so obviously poor old Food Hub were preempting fury of the kind that you just yeah. unleashed. Mm. Mm. 
Riveted. I suppose it is between two pieces of bread. It is, but then also on... Is a hot dog a sandwich then? Yes, they, they said the hot dog got 9% and a kebab got 7%. I mean, have some respect. There has to be some boundaries here if we are truly going to celebrate the sandwich. So would you call a burger fast food? Yeah, I'd call it a, a fast food or like a, a hot snack. I would not call it a, a sandwich. There's a national snack day on March the 4th. Oh my God, we have missed so many great days this year. <laughs> March the 5th is National Absinthe Day. What? Oh, my birthday, March the 6th, is National Frozen Food Day. Is it? And you love a frozen food meal. A frozen food meal. Yeah, I don't mind a you frozen do. food meal. You do. You love meal. a fish finger, you love a potato smiley. Oh, I'm so pleased that they chose your birthday. Wait, let's see what your let's see what your birthday is. Oh, oh, oh my god. Oh no, what is it? What is it? You're not gonna be happy about this. I know how you feel about picnics. August the thirty first is eat outside day. Ugh. No. That's upsetting to me. National Trail Mix Day. I mean you are a veggie. Oh, National Trail Mix Day. That's what you give to birds, isn't it? Oh, what an insipid little day for you. <laughs> Do we read into this? <laughs> no. I can't no. believe that. Panda, before we close on this subject, I know we've discussed it a million times before, but I just want to know if it's been updated. Your number one sandwich. It's your last sandwich before you get banished to a desert island. Tell me. Oh, I think it's probably still the best prawn sandwich from M&S. Yeah, it's so good. So good. Sells out very fast, that sandwich. You have to get there early. But I do love a homemade ham sandwich just with butter, ham. What about you? Um, mine would be, oh, there's this sandwich shop that everyone needs to know about. Londoners need to know about. Anyone visiting London needs to know about. It's called S&D, Sons and Daughters Sandwiches in King's Cross. They are so good. They are massive. You could probably use one sandwich to feed you for both lunch and dinner. They're stuffed with crisps. The egg one is very good. The prawn one is very good. They're just the best sandwiches I've ever eaten. So probably the egg sandwich. I know it's not very popular. And I know it makes me the loser girl at school who gets her sandwich out of her Tupperware and everyone shouts, uh, who's got egg? But you know what? Part of getting older is embracing who you are. And I love an egg sandwich. I've, I've found the days that I think you'd really like. Oh, tell me. August the 5th, National Oyster Day. Gosh, or yeah. August the 18th, National Pinot Noir Day. So I think you've got a really <laughs> good case, actually, for suing your parents, for not inducing you. If you were in America... You might have sued your parents and we were in like, when was the really litigious, maybe like the mid 90s. Do you remember when that girl yes. sued her brother for breaking her Barbie? Stealing <laughs> her Barbie. So I think you should sue them for yeah. Uh, yeah, not inducing you so that you could either have oysters or Pinot Noir. Anyway. Yeah, or maybe I put in a request to the food holiday planners and say, please, can you do a pickled onion monster munch day? And please, can you make it August 31st? Yeah, I think trying to get in touch with the food planners, it's a bit nebulous that, is like trying to get in touch with the emoji keyboard on the iPhone, which I tried and they, I tried a few years ago for a very important project and they don't respond. So try and get in touch with the food planners. Who, who is the food holiday ombudsman? I want to know. Please, can you direct me to them? In the mailbag this week, we were inundated with your haunting tales of ghosting, including one from a woman whose date left the dinner table halfway through their meal, saying he decided she wasn't his type, disappeared out of the pub and was never seen or heard from again. God, did he leave any cash before he went? She didn't, she didn't disclose any information of him leaving cash. Mm. She had a very good sense of humour about it and I thank her for writing in with it because that does sound... Truly horrifying. We also received a photo of a brilliant Halloween costume. A listener wearing ghostly white makeup and wearing a t-shirt that just shows a series of blue sent eye messages that have gone unreplied. Oh, very good. The community we mentioned last week, which is all about ghosting, 
again, not in the Halloween sense, hard to forget, got in touch with some of the ghosting stories that they had received. And this was my favorite, a definition of ghosting that they found upsettingly accurate. A gorgeous French boy once explained ghosting to me. Women fake orgasms, men fake relationships. <laughs> Bit dubious. <laughs> oh, I liked it. We aren't going to do any recommendations this week, as instead we have an author special for you. I'm sitting on my hands not to tell you about some of the things I loved this week, but I will store them up for next week. But quickly, please watch The Undoing. Dolly, if you haven't watched The Undoing yet, watch it so we can talk about it next week. It's properly old school. You have to watch an episode a week. Sky have refused to cave in and give us the whole set to binge. Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant, a murder and a missing mm. husband. Go. That sounds brilliant. Oh, and also, I can't help but tell you that on your recommendation last week, I've been listening to the podcast You're Wrong About, and there is nothing more pleasing than listening to two incredibly intelligent and thoughtful Americans be completely baffled by British aristocracy in the episodes about Princess <laughs> Diana. <laughs> I cannot get enough of it. It's literally like they'll be talking about her father and they'll say... So apparently he would eat his dinner in a different wing of a house. And in England, these houses, they have these weird names like the Gable in Ridingford. <laughs> and it's just like, go eat your, be a normal dad. Eat dinner with your kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> Support for the Hilo comes from Osmology. It's candle season at home, so get down and cosy with your favourite scented candle. Us basic bitches at the Hilo love a scented candle. Absolutely no surprises there. Preferably with a bed sock, singular, and a glass of red wine. Osmology curates the world's best scented candle brands to make shopping for candles online easier than ever. From luxury brands such as Sear Trudon and Scandinavian candle experts Scandinavisk to independent British candle makers like Hobo & Co and Earl of East, you'll find the perfect treat for yourself or gift for someone else at Osmology. Osmology has hundreds of beautiful scents available to shop online, as well as new festive limited editions such as the amazing Holiday Rituals collection by Boy Smells, portable Christmas tree candle by DS and Durga, and spiced pumpkin candle by PF Candle Company. One of my favourites on Osmology is number 10, Sweet Grapefruit Scented Candle by PF Candle Co. I love grapefruit and it's very delicious in a scented candle, I've discovered. I love Cinderose scented candle by Boy Smells. Go to osmology.co to get 10% off plus free shipping. Use code HILO, H-I-G-H-L-O-W at checkout. Thank you very much to Osmology. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Our guest this week is the writer, speaker and podcaster Atega Awagba. She is the author of the Sunday Times bestseller Little Black Book, a toolkit for working women, and is the founder of Women Who, a London-based platform aimed at creative women. She also hosts the Women Who podcast, In Good Company. As a journalist, her writing has been published in The Cut, ID and Dazed, amongst other publications. Now she's written an essay, White's on race and other falsehoods. Written in the aftermath of George Floyd's brutal murder, this personal essay reflects on racism, whiteness, and the colossal burden placed on black people to navigate the two. Nikesh Shukla, editor of The Good Immigrant, has called it sharp, pointed, clear, and brutal stuff. Angela Saini, author of Inferior and Superior, has described it as an eloquent, heartfelt mini memoir. 
Otegaro Wagba examines the subtle ways in which fighting racism is hampered not only by those who are obviously racist, but more perniciously by those who believe themselves to be anti-racist. Otega, welcome to the Hilo. Hello guys, very pleased to be here. The crux of your essay can be summed up in this one line that you write, I think, Otega, which is, racism is really a matter of navigating white people. And there's a story in the book that really encompasses that idea. I wondered if you'd be able to read it for us, as I think it's such a powerful introduction to your essay for our listeners. A memory. It's Friday night and I'm at home getting ready to go meet my friends Molly and Amelia for a celebratory drink. Molly has just passed her driving test. As the three of us ping messages back and forth, It transpires that some of Molly's friends from work will also be joining us. My heart sinks. I've never actually met her colleagues before, but she works at a creative agency in East London, so I know pretty much what to expect, having myself once worked at a creative agency in East London. White people who consider themselves socially progressive because they have mildly countercultural tastes and have been to GAY a few times. For people of colour, some aspect of friendship with white people involves an awareness that you could be dropped through a trapdoor of racism at any moment, by a slip of the tongue, or at a campus party, or in a legislative campaign. But it's not always anticipated. These are the words of the journalist Wesley Morris, which to me feel like the truest description of the black experience when navigating white spaces although I personally would extend his definition beyond the boundaries of just friendship and apply it to being around white people in general. The older I get, the more on edge I feel in these sorts of situations, having learned that a slip of the tongue is never that far away, no matter how progressive the company. At the pub now, I'm queuing to buy a drink, ending up in conversation with Molly's boss while we're both waiting to be served. I'd been on a shoot run by a Swedish production crew a few days earlier, and in telling him about it, I make the obvious joke about how good-looking Swedish people are, especially in comparison to us trollish, sun-starved and rain-soaked Brits. Yeah, I know, he replies, continuing. And they're all beautiful in that really, like, Aryan-looking way as well as though dreamily invoking a beauty standard popularised by a regime that murdered six million Jews, in part because they didn't conform to it, is an entirely normal thing to say. I am lost for words, and the conversation moves on while I'm still processing his comment. Later that evening, I am in conversation with another of Molly's colleagues, who proceeds to tell me in far too much detail about a messy breakup he's just been through and the ex-girlfriend who is now dragging her feet over repaying him the £20,000 he, foolishly, in my opinion, lent her. I ask lots of questions, polite but ultimately bemused, and we speculate about the potential legal recourse he might be able to take. She's also half Jamaican, half Guyanese, he comments before moving on to another detail of what is becoming clear is an incredibly bizarre situation. Wait, what? I don't understand, I say, the back of my neck suddenly hot and tight. I know where this is headed, and that I should spare myself the discomfort, but I prod him anyway. What? he replies. You just mentioned that she's half Jamaican, half Guyanese. I don't understand. How's that relevant? I say, neutrally, feigning confusion. Oh, just... He tails off, trying to change the subject, but I press. Well, I'm like from the countryside, he elaborates. A non-sequitur, if ever I heard one. I'd literally never met a black person before I moved to London. I didn't know any black people. Right, I say blankly. I still don't get it even though I do, but I want him to say plainly what he had only been brave enough to insinuate. Oh, nothing, he says. I just learned a lot from the situation, that's all. Like what? Just not to trust people, you know. 
black people? No, 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 no. That's not what I meant. I don't know why I brought up her race. It's not relevant. I give him an icy smile and abruptly end the conversation, turning to speak to someone else, and he leaves almost immediately after, avoiding my gaze as he waves goodbye to the table. I am reminded that no matter how carefully I choose my own friends, I cannot control for or vet the white people they bring into my life. That trap door that you reference feels like an analogy that is both horrifying and powerful in its description. You later go on to describe the physical sensation you feel when the trap door is open, one that even after all these years still takes you by surprise. The opening of it is the action of white people and yet you describe how you are the one who ends up feeling embarrassed and never the assailant. When did you first become aware of this potential trapdoor that is ever-present, even, as you describe, in circles that would identify as progressive? I think that was probably in my late teens, early 20s, when I went to university. So I, I, I went to Oxford, which is obviously a not particularly diverse university in terms of race or socioeconomically or indeed anything. And I think that was the first time I had... I was a a little bit older and slightly more conscious of race, but also was suddenly meeting lots of people who didn't know any black people. Like I went to school in London, and so to go to Oxford and meet these people who just didn't know black people, weren't familiar with black people, and said lots of ignorant things. I think that was the first time I remember feeling that kind of prickly discomfort at someone having made a comment. And me feeling uncomfortable and knowing it was racialized, but actually personally not even being able to identify why, let alone being able to articulate it to them. So I would just say nothing and feel awkward or change the conversation. Um, and I think honestly, it's only really in my mid to late 20s. So in the past couple of years that I think I've found the language to be able to discuss um, those sorts of you know comments or to even, you know, to be able to discuss let's say among my black friends why certain things make me uncomfortable I think lots of conversations um around race and identity over the past five years or so have kind of given me the language so like when I first read Wesley Morris writing about the trapdoor of racism that was five years ago and I just remember just feeling completely seen and like he'd described this physical sensation that I'd never before had the words to describe and now I just use it all the time and I think it's it's actually and when, when I say it to other black people or to other people of color they instantly get it but I didn't have that phrase when I was in my late teens or early 20s so I, I yeah I think it was probably the first time I kind of really went outside of London actually. In Whites you talk about something that we've seen a lot of this year this tendency to look at the states and think well, it's much worse over there. George Floyd was murdered over there. And famously, Keir Starmer did this, you know, just a few months ago. Your succinct riposte is that it is no worse over there. It is just more visually spectacular, which gives a really useful explanation as to where this fault line in thinking may come from. Why do you think we fall into these traps of thinking that it's always worse somewhere else? I think... We think that because, you know, first of all, America is, you know, so kind of culturally dominant. Like I think we tend to, everyone tends to import their sort of cultural references and they kind of tend to dominate the conversations. And so even when I think about racism or when a lot of people think about racism, you know, people think of like the KKK and like, you know, crosses being burnt on lawns and just these really kind of powerful visceral images that are largely Americanized, and that is what people define racism as. They kind of think of the overt violence and segregation. And because it's easy to kind of conjure those images and because they're associated with America, you kind of assume it's worse over there. And then even if you kind of think about contemporary culture and, you know, the conversations around police brutality, American police officers carry guns day to day. So obviously their kind of corruption, police brutality is more likely to result in the sorts of viral um, incidents that we see where someone is killed on camera and it's recorded and it kind of circulates around the world. And so 
I think people fall into the trap of thinking that it's a bigger problem in the US than it is, let's say, in the UK. But I think it's a similar problem. It just manifests differently. And I think it manifests in slightly more subtle ways in the UK. But, you know, I, I include an example in the essay of like a black American man kind of jokingly asking me whether racism was as bad in the UK as it was in the US. And I wanted to be like, well, you know, like we invented it, like, you know, we literally like exported it over to America. Like it's not, I, I think there's, I, I think a lot of, I'm afraid to say it, but like a lot of white British liberal people kind of use that to kind of assuage their own guilt and kind of project onto America and onto Americans. And I just really wanted to point out that that isn't the case and, and to really make that clear. And I think maybe people are starting to understand that a bit more, but I definitely felt like even in the conversations in light of, you know, George Floyd being killed, this kind of like breathless horror at what happened over there. And I was like, you know, we have incidents of police brutality here as well. They just don't tend to involve guns as often like that, you know, that is something that I think people really need to understand. And I think white people need to understand because I don't think that many black people or people of color, certainly not my friends and my community, we do not have the luxury of thinking that it's like somehow magically better in the UK than it is anywhere else. Do you think that comes from this still fairly entrenched idea of racism being either you're racist and you're bad or you're not racist and you're good? Yeah, totally. I think people think of racism as kind of being a binary, you either are, you aren't, when obviously it's not like that it exists on a spectrum. And, you know, you can go all the way from like a small microaggression, like someone telling me that, oh, you're so well spoken and kind of saying it in a way that suggests an element of surprise, all the way through to, you know, lynchings or whatever, like it's a spectrum. And I think people think, and often when I'm saying people, I mean white people, often think that if they're not guilty of the latter, of the violence and the, you know, open hatred, then they aren't guilty of racism or because they associate racism with those really kind of awful images and acts and incidents, they take such great offence um, at it. You know, obviously, Robin D'Angelo um, has written extensively about white fragility. And I think she kind of discusses that in her book and in her work, how people you know white people kind of have this idea of racism as being accused of racism is this kind of indicative like your morality and they're like well I'm a good person so I couldn't possibly be racist but I think obviously those two things can 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 and do coexist and in the essays you mentioned you speak very clearly about the delineations of white activism and and question whether allyship can ever truly exist allyship in traditional terms means a territory aligning with all of its resources and power and this is often not translated in the human version of support that we call allyship can you tell us a bit more about the allyship that evokes actual change i was very interested by you using the example of the New York Times op-ed and how the New York Times writers responded to it. Mm, yeah, I mean, that incident really rattled me. And, and just, just for anyone listening, just in context, you know, I think about a week or 10 days after um, George Floyd was killed, there was an op-ed published in the New York Times by a Republican senator arguing for you know, the kind of like almost like violent suppression of the protest, it, you know, had very kind of like Tiananmen Square vibes. And it was published in the New York Times. There was a huge backlash, you know, the opinion editor who, you know, approved its publication ended up having to, I think he ended up resigning. Um, and it was kind of widely agreed to have been an unconscionable article to have um, published and something to have platformed. Now, what really interested and rattled me was that at the time, New York Times journalists, my understanding is that they are unable to kind of criticise their, like many people, unable to criticise their employer and unable to express certain views on social media without being penalised for them. And I found that the first people to kind of break that and to actually kind of go out and come out against the article publicly who, who worked there were the black New York Times staffers, whereas the white New York Times staffers were very, very reluctant to essentially 
you know, risk their jobs or put themselves on the line or risk getting in trouble at work in order to come out and denounce this article, which was essentially encouraging violence against black people. And that for me was the kind of the boundary, if you like, because these were people who had been talking about the importance of allyship and amplifying black voices and, you know, buying black authors and patronizing black owned businesses. But when push came to shove, when it came to really kind of putting themselves on the line to make us, you know, take a stand against something that, you know, was damaging to black people, they were either unable or unwilling to do that. I just felt like that was a really clear example of people kind of talking the talk, but not being able to walk the walk. So these are people who in principle, you know, in theory, believe that racism is bad and want to see the end of racism. But when it comes to actually, you know, the personal sacrifices that might be necessary on an individual basis to achieve that, weren't necessarily um, willing to do that. And that I found very eye-opening. Coming back to allyship, I wanted to ask you about something that Dolly and I have discussed between us a lot, and I know a lot of people have discussed this year, which is about kind of action offline versus online, which was particularly prevalent around the time of the protests earlier this year for Black Lives Matter. And people who didn't post black squares would be called out by other people. There were people who believed very strongly in black squares, people who thought, you know, it was just a distraction, a waste of time, not particularly meaningful. And we saw a rush of people buying anti-racist literature. There was one week where the entire bestseller charts was anti-racist literature. And in Whites, you are cynical about this. You describe it as swatting up on the semantics, which I think is really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about your concern at this mass reaction and where the limitations lie with that approach? Mm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I think those responses by white people and kind of rushing to put things on social media and rushing to buy these books and rushing to post them, those were in large part what kind of eventually spurred me to write this essay because I felt so uncomfortable with it. And the reason is that those are easy actions to do. I think it's actually very easy to post something on social media. It's easy to buy a book. It's easy to read a book. It's easy to post it on social media. And I think for me, it just often felt slightly performative. I, I did not assume if somebody wasn't posting or sharing something on social media, I didn't assume, oh, it must mean they don't care. Or, oh, it must mean they're a racist. You know, I, I, I know there are people who feel differently about it, but I didn't feel that. What I did worry about was people assuming that because they'd read the right books and now knew the right terms and know things like the trapdoor of racism, know to use terms like white fragility, know to use terms like white privilege, they think they've done the work, which is another phrase that kind of got thrown around quite a lot. And they think that they've done what is necessary to dismantle racism. And that isn't even close. It doesn't even touch the sides. And so I just wanted to, I wanted to put those acts in the context of their kind of level of importance. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't read the books or shouldn't you know, I am a little bit sceptical about social media posting, I'm going to be perfectly honest, but I'm not saying people shouldn't read the books, but I don't want people, white people, to assume that that means they've done something particularly consequential, if I'm being really honest. And I think that might kind of make some people feel quite affronted and think, well, what do you want us to do then? But I just wanted to make the point that I think that those are really, really small, tiny actions and the things that are really required to you know, really change structures and be fundamentally redistributive in terms of power and wealth and income and respect and all these things requires more than adding, you know, a few books to your Amazon, you know, wish list or whoever you buy books from. And I include my own book in that. You know, I I'm talk I've I realized that there was definitely a kind of like tension or contradiction between my writing an essay and therefore potentially kind of contributing to this kind of rush of literature about it that people might then buy. And, you know, that was, that's a conflict I kind of talk about in the essay. Like I don't want my essay to kind of become this kind of virtue signaling thing for white people to be like, oh, but I've, you know, I've had people say to me, well, I've read X book, so I know what it's like. And I'm like, you, you don't really. Um, and I was quite conscious of my book potentially falling into that trap but at the same time I had things that I wanted to say so I just kind of had to, to deal with that. One of the most interesting 
tensions that you speak of about you writing whites is that over the course of this year, you've said several times how uncomfortable you are to be seen as an educator just because you're black. I remember reading, I think it was a tweet you wrote where you said that you were included in anti-racist reading lists, even though you had at that point never written about race. Mm. What made you decide to write about race having resisted it up until that point? Yeah, that's a really good question because, again, that's something that I grappled with in deciding to write about this. You know, I think the long and short of it is that I just had stuff that I wanted to get off my chest. You know, the content of this essay, a lot of that stuff comes from notes that I've been making over the past few years. Um, So I'd always wanted to write about or address race at some point, but I just very much wanted to do it on my own terms. and, And I felt like this was this was that. Um, I was very conscious of the fact that it will now kind of put me in a position where people kind of bring their race questions to me and will put me in certain kind of uncomfortable positions. But I I think I felt like my desire to say certain things and I guess to, to actually yeah, teach people certain things kind of outweighed any personal discomfort I might then feel. But yeah, I found it weird that during, you know, sort of in June, people were saying, Otega, you know, putting my first book, Little Black Book, on these anti-racism reading lists. And I was like, it doesn't touch, it doesn't touch on race at all. It doesn't talk about race at all. And it, it just felt very lazy and actually just felt quite dehumanizing that people would sort of say, oh, well, you're black. So must, you know, you must have something to say or, you know, or even the, I just felt quite lazy, the idea that you know, people, you know, I I had an, a rise in followers on my social media platforms, which I felt very, very uncomfortable with. And the idea that people, white people, <laughs> were following me thinking this was in some way going to educate them about racism, anti-racism, when I had not yet really said much about it, I found that quite infuriating. And so I, I think to an extent, me kind of writing this essay felt like kind of reclaiming a bit of that power, if I'm honest. White opens with a quote from Dr. Tressie Macmillan Cotton. To know our whites is to understand the psychology of white people and the elasticity of whiteness. It is to be intimate with some white persons, but to critically withhold faith in white people categorically. You state in the essay that some of your closest friends are white. Can you tell us about the dichotomy described in the epigraph of what it is to have close relationships with white individuals while withholding faith in whiteness and the systems of whiteness? Um, yeah, it's very tough. <laughs> um, I I think for me this summer, I had to have a lot of very difficult conversations with friends of mine who are white and had to really, I think it brought to a head various tensions and things that I'd definitely kind of left unsaid over the past couple of years. And I kind of had to navigate sort of being really blunt, like who and what relationships are important enough to me that I am willing to kind of allow them the grace to go on whatever journey they need to go on and and which ones are not. Um, It's it's always been a difficult thing. Um, You know, I went to a school that was mostly white and then I went to university that was mostly white. So I have a lot of white friends. Um, And I also have a lot of white friends who are from privileged backgrounds where I am probably one of their only white friends. And I think for me, in a strange way, the events of the summer were strangely clarifying because my, I think in years gone by, I've probably been more tolerant about certain ignorances and certain things that I am now just absolutely no longer willing to tolerate. And I think that was really brought home to me this summer. But yeah, it's been it's been tough and challenging and, um, I kind of navigate it on a case by case basis essentially there isn't really a sort of blanket rule but it's it is a strange thing I would just say that the quality and the tenor and the tone of my friendships with white people are always going to be different to the tone of the ones with black people um and I I think that's just a fact because of certain shared references and certain shared experiences um, and I think just kind of accepting that and realising that this summer um, was really useful for me. 
One of the most affecting parts of Whites is where you discuss the effect of COVID-19 on racism. You say that one pandemic has simply worsened another. And yet, as Zadie Smith actually observed in Intimations, racism is a pandemic that is extremely hard to develop a vaccine for. Yeah, I mean, I found it really striking. And yeah, I've, I've read Intimations as well. And I, I remember thinking that we are very much sort of on the page, same page with that. I found it, first of all, really interesting that George Floyd's death actually captured as much attention as it did. Um, and I talk about why I think that was in the essay, but I think it took me a while to get around to that because it's awful, but this is happening all the time. This happens all the time. We've all heard and read the stories and there are also hundreds and thousands of stories that we haven't heard and read. So I think for me, it was really, I had to spend a bit of time trying to figure out why it was that this story had kind of captured attention the way that it had. I think it was because there were just so many clear parallels between the two situations and because they were so interlinked like as everyone knows the people who were sort of most you know who were most affected by the pandemic you know financially health-wise were black people and people of color and I think once that started to emerge that was so troubling um, to me and I think troubling to a lot of people and troubling to a lot of white people that it then kind of you know, instigated wider conversations about structural racism that I think it meant that when George Floyd was killed, we were all sort of primed and ready and almost kind of having the conversation about the effects of racism on people's lives, that this just kind of was the, happened to be example that happened, it sounds, the wording is terrible, but say kind of at the right place at the right time, it just so happened that it just happened at the right time to kind of completely detonate this already very volatile situation um but i mean in terms of there being a vaccine for it i again i i read intimations when it came out this summer and i was i was quite surprised at how cynical sadie smith almost was by coming to that conclusion because it felt quite unexpected from her and i know that my essay is quite cynical but i am quite a cynical person so i wasn't surprised and i found it strangely vindicating that in some ways she had expressed a similar kind of hopelessness and resignation that I am generally feeling at the moment um which isn't you know I think often I feel under pressure to come up with some sort of uplifting conclusion or um you know action plan of where we go next and I was very very clear and very adamant that this essay would not do that because Realistically, that's not how I feel. I've been on this earth now for 30 years and I haven't, you know, this essay is based on observations, you know, across my entire life. And I feel like I've kind of got a fairly good handle on things. I'm not saying that things haven't improved, but in terms of, you know, really kind of drastic change, I feel like I always see us going two steps forward, one step back or three steps back. You know, they elect Barack Obama in the US and all these, you know, white people are so incensed by the idea of a black president that at the next possible opportunity they elect Donald Trump. You know, I, I think there is a real thing around like backlash politics and the fact that whenever things improve for certain marginalized communities, there are people who are so incensed by that, that they do everything they can to reclaim power. So yeah, I, I there were definitely, it sounds very self-aggrandizing to say that there were similarities between my work and Zadie Smith's, but I definitely did feel like we shared a bit of that cynicism around the situation. That phrase backlash politics is really good. And as soon as you said that, I suddenly thought of all these examples globally that we're seeing of backlash politics. Totally. It's the same thing with the Me Too movement. You know, we had the Me Too movement and then almost immediately afterwards, I think it was the same year. I remember it was the New York Times publishing something that was like, has the Me Too movement gone too far? And all these like, oh, is it a witch hunt? And it was within months of the movement even starting, like you, you take two steps forward and people get rattled and try and push you back. Like progress is never a linear thing, I find. Did you feel any less hopeless for having written or in the process of writing whites or did it merely allow you to embed yourself further in that feeling of hopelessness? I found it in many ways a bit of a relief um, to write. Um, like I didn't, it's it's interesting when I sent it to um, 
I sent it to someone uh, to, to my agent and she was like oh this must have been really difficult for you to write and I was like in some ways yeah no actually it, it wasn't that hard to write because I think it helped me crystallize my thoughts and helped me kind of articulate these kind of niggling doubts that I had had about allyship and about white people and I feel strangely just kind of more at peace you know for having decided this is how I feel and this is what I can reasonably expect from white people and what, what I don't expect from them and I feel a little bit more able to just kind of get on with my life and and not to be like I said I, I think there's a pressure to kind of offer up this message of hope when you're talking about race and I just didn't have that to offer and I, I so I, I feel just slightly relieved and, and like I, I can just kind of move on and now for me the my goal is just to kind of try and navigate this system as best I can um, and so I think writing whites was strangely felt like a burden had been lifted like it really did feel cathartic to write um, and like I was sort of kind of cleansing something and kind of getting a lot of things off my chest and now I can kind of move on. White's The Powerful New Essay by Otega Wagba is published by Fourth Estate on the 12th of November. Otega, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to The High Low. You can write to us by emailing thehighlowshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The High Low Show. You can buy our merch at thehighlowshop.com where 100% of proceeds go to charity. In November, the proceeds are going to Fair Share. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.